Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Anybody need a copy of God's Word? I don't know if it got moved over from the other. Oh, Pastor Dennis does have some. If you need a Bible, put a hand up. Pastor Dennis is running around right now. We are in John chapter 7. You're supposed to just point at me like it was my fault. I won't know the difference. We have the first slide of the PowerPoint. Awesome. Okay. How many times in 2020, oh, let's be honest, in 2016, in 2012, in 2008, 2004, right now the numbers I'm listing, you're just going, oh, I hope he's talking about the Olympics. God, please don't talk about politics, please. How many times has a story hit the news only for every one of us, to a man or a woman, watch the exact same thing happen over and over again? The people that wanted to see the situation this way saw it this way. And the want, those that wanted to see the situation that way saw it that way. Can somebody testify that that is how human beings operate? I do not uh, envy the position of the attorneys that have to try to find 12 remotely unbiased persons to determine the guilt or innocence of somebody. Because as human beings, as fallen human beings, I mean, our rejection of God was essentially saying, we're smarter than you, we've got this. And we're still playing that out to this day. We just really think that we are smart. So... Here's some good news that I've got for you. If you feel stressed out by evidence not mattering, if you really care about an issue, can you just agree with me? My hand's going to go up. If you care deeply about influencing somebody on an issue, does it frustrate you that the evidence just didn't seem to matter? I can show you a three-dimensional image of a baby in the womb, and it does not influence you. I've got some good news in the midst of the darkness. I've got some good news for you. Our text today is going to show that evidence not mattering is not new to 2020. It's not new to 2016. It's not new to Western culture, uh, modern American culture, like just not new. And what is so critical about those of us who call ourselves Christians finding out that this is not new is we need to understand what Jesus is saying and what the Bible writers, and particularly the New Testament, but really the whole Bible, when they consistently show that God already knew that we were a stubborn bunch of folks. A God who would get tripped up by my stubbornness is not a God who's big enough to save me. He has to be stronger than my arrogance, my bullheadedness, my refusal to consider the facts. 
And so here, at the end of 20, toward the end of 2020, I don't say at the end, I just almost skipped Christmas. Dear God, no. <laughs> don't skip Christmas. I haven't even seen Elf yet. I want to remind us, the text, it's really just the next piece of text, I want to remind us that our God's plan to seek and save the lost is in no way hitting a speed bump of your disbelief or mine. He's bigger than that. That's good news. Today, part three. Same facts, different conclusions is the title of our sermon. Same facts, different conclusions. So page 888, if you have the hardback, the Pastor Dennis just graciously passed out. Everybody else, John chapter 7, we're going to pick up at verse 31. John 7, pick it up at 31. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. Who's the him? Okay, sweet. If you're new to church, just cry out Jesus. There's a 90% chance that you're correct. If it wasn't right, say Moses. There's another 90% chance you're correct. They believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? That's a fair question, right? When the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. Can we stop and give an amen? When crowds of of Americans in 2020, no matter how much we gripe and complain about the suppression of opinions, no one sends the police to your door to drag you away because they didn't like what you said on Facebook. So no matter how bad, and I'm not saying don't fight, I'm not saying don't stand up for liberty. You don't have the police dragging you away because of what you said. So they send armed people to come arrest Jesus because a following is being built. 33, but Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer. So so the but at the start of verse 33 so you're trying to come arrest me, but, hey, your window is closing, is closing fast. Your, your window of opportunity is closing. I'm not even going to be with you much longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, You will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going. Holy Spirit, please open your word to our minds and our hearts, especially today. Give us joy as we repent by your power. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray, and God's people said, amen. You note takers, people believing in Jesus is the dominant theme and purpose of the gospel of John. I want to remind us of this because we started the series almost two years ago, and uh, I know that uh, when you pull out, you know, season six of The Walking Dead, they spend the first three and a half minutes reminding you of who's chasing who and why, right? Okay, so we need to do the same thing. People believing in Jesus, or at the minimum, being presented with the identity of Jesus so that they now have to make a choice. That might be a little more clear is a dominant theme and purpose of the Gospel of John. 
not only do you see it repeated throughout the gospel, John even, the last two sentences that he writes is, hey, I wrote this that you might believe and have life in his name, which is another way of saying in his authority. So in glad submission to the authority of Christ over you, if you become a Christian, you will have life in his name. That's what he's saying, in, in his name, in his authority, taken on to you a little Christ, a Christian, okay? This is, let's see here. Oh, yeah. So I want you to ask yourself this question if you already love Jesus. What area of your life needs more of Jesus' lordship? You need Jesus to be more in charge than he currently is. Life in his name is really, it's really critical. Let's step back and, and use, define a couple of Christianese terms. Salvation and sanctification. Salvation, marked by justification, my Sins are washed clean by the blood of Jesus when I put my faith in him to do so. And I am given right standing. The Father looks at me now as if I am perfect, even though we both know I'm not. He chooses to see Jesus Christ, his son, when he looks at me. My guilt stamped onto Jesus and taken to the cross. And Jesus' holiness stamped onto me, allowing me to walk into heaven as if I'm sinless. If you've only got one amen ready for this entire Sunday, that was your moment right there. Sanctification, another Christianese word. The Holy Spirit, we're using the word of God in a family of faith to work in you and on you to make you more and more like your Savior. And he's not done with you until you go home, amen? So you got to... Christian friend or a friend who thinks they're Christian holding their nose high and acting like they're better than everybody else, they don't get it. They don't get it. Okay? Christianity is not I am awesome. Christianity is Christ is awesome. That's why it's named after him. It's not named after you or me. Amen? Just not. In fact, if you want to sell three million copies of a book, make up a religion where it's named after <laughs> you-ism, you know? If you love Jesus, you were positionally saved. You were washed away of your sins. And that is how the Father sees you. And now you are on this journey that you may have life in his name. Okay? So every baby step of obedience, Christian, every thing that you or I surrender to Jesus day by day in this slog, in this difficult journey of me not being on the throne of my life anymore... Every drop of it is that I might have more and more of life in his name. That's why I explained in his name means under his authority. How many of you will testify right now, I want to see a lot of hands up, that the day you became Christian, there were tons and tons and tons of areas of your life that were not under his authority yet, right? Okay, I came to Jesus because I know I'm a mess. That's what Jesus said, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, like those that know they need God. I'm a mess, so I opened the front door and allowed Jesus to come in and he had his Mr. Clean bottle and he had a broom and he was coming in and he started sweeping the living room. But there are a lot of rooms to this house. The purpose of the book of John is that you might believe and have life in his name. Christian, what's an area of your life where you need more of Christ's lordship over you that you experience more of life in his name under his authority? What about your thought life? Your words. Do your words need more of Christ's authority over them? What about your opportunities to serve others? 
when you see opportunities, how often you're able to take them or not take them. And by the way, saying no for good reasons is a very, very good thing. I'm not telling you to say yes to everything. What about your study of the scriptures? Your study habits, how submitted are they to Christ? How much more life is waiting for you if you grow in your study habits? What about my personal spending habits? Anybody need the authority of Christ to grow in their personal spending, saving, investing? If I said the word investing and you go, oh yeah, I should do that, then that means that the authority of Christ needs to grow in your spending habits because you're spending it all, right? (laughs) What about how authentic I choose to be with others? Is there anybody that knows deep down? I mean, we just preached a seven-week series on it this spring about what the body is and how the one and others play out. How many of us need the authority of Christ to grow, the lordship of Christ to grow in my level of authenticity? I know that the increase of authenticity is going to be a blessing in, in at least two directions, but I'm still scared. What about the stewardship of my body? Is there something in the stewardship of my body where the lordship of Christ needs to grow? What about my sex life, where Christ needs to be in charge instead of allowing desire uh, to be in charge of everything. Can, and can we stop and just say for a second how unbelievably dangerous the world would be if we all said yes to every desire that floated through our heart? That would be anarchy. What about how I treat my children or my grandchildren, nieces or nephews? Does the lordship of Christ need to grow in how I am treating children? I'm loving them, serving them, proactively teaching them, or not doing those things. Does the lordship of Christ need to grow in my mouth, whether I feed gossip or whether I kill it? So back to number one. People believing in Jesus is the dominant theme and purpose of the Gospel of John. Number two. Some in the crowd saw the same miraculous miracles that the religious leaders did yet came to different conclusions. So there was no blank for you there, but look at verse 31. You'll see in a second why there's no blank. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? So they are citing the evidence of what's right in front of them. It was popular theology at the time that the Messiah would do miracles, and they're saying, really? Like, is there some other candidate that I don't know about that did more miracles than Jesus? Like, this is rational to me. Anybody ever feel like their own position is totally rational, makes tons of sense, and everyone else is crazy? Right? I'm not trying to make this a psych class, but (laughs) we just think that our own position is totally rational. Oh, I have two copies of this. Third point. This is why I couldn't fill in the blanks, because it's the same exact words in reverse. The religious leaders saw the same miracles that the crowd did, yet came to a different conclusion. Verse 32, when the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, what things? Would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? They and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. Is that a very different response? Say yes. That is very, very different. So you've got these super religious types that are known as the teachers and leaders of Israel. We're not even talking about the Sadducees today. They kind of played a backseat in some ways. 
the Pharisees. Super, super conservative. Lots and lots of Bible verses memorized. And just when you think that you can push off the Pharisees and go, oh, well, I have a day job. They're pastors. They can spend 50 hours a week studying the Bible. Just when you're ready to throw that one at the Pharisees, uh, no, oops, uh-oh, you don't get that excuse. Pharisees were not priests by career. These are regular people. It is all of their spare time that goes to Bible study. So this is the person who is at, at, at church every time the door is open. They are at every Bible study. They're always at church, no matter what. They joined three churches just to make sure that they get all the, all the juju. So yeah, they are looking down on you, just to be clear. And they expect a certain amount of respect and awe. Jesus called them out for desiring a place of honor at meals and at feasts and to stand and pray publicly where everybody can hear their prayers. It says, don't pray like them. And Pilate, the procurator that Caesar had put in place over Judea, when he is talking with Jesus not too long after this, and he is questioning him, the Bible says that Pilate knew clear as day that he had been arrested out of jealousy. Of who? The Pharisees. Because here's the deal. When I, in my heart, I think I love God, but in fact I love myself. And I live for the praise of people, and religion's a really good way to get other people to think you're a good person. And everything is just fine. You have worked your way up. You're now an apex predator. You're at the top of the totem pole. And somebody who shows up who teaches the Bible like he just doesn't care what you think. But I'm a Pharisee. You should totally care what I think. And just when you're ready to shut him down, he makes a blind man see. Oh. And then there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and she's healed. She's clean and she can go to temple for the first time in a long time. Or there was a little girl who was dead and she's running around now. Brothers and sisters, the power of God is only the scent of life to those who are being saved by him. It is the scent of death to everyone else. That little girl is dead and now she's alive and I can't celebrate it because her existence is a threat to my idolatrous worship of myself. I was just fine before Jesus got here. Thank you very much. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be the exact same way when Jesus comes the second time. We will be in trouble if Jesus shows up the second time and we are in a position where we say, I was perfectly happy the way things were. Thank you very much. His power, the evidence of who he is as Messiah, it divides the crowd. 
let's dive in theologically to this difference. Why, are, why is the crowd divided based on the same evidence? Here's your blank. Faith is God's chosen vehicle of reconciliation between God and mankind. Faith is God's chosen vehicle of reconciliation between God and mankind. Or to be more specific, faith that allows my heart to believe the gospel, to be more detailed. Look at what the Apostle Paul, early church pastor, says. Early in his letter to the church at Rome, he's never met. He's introducing himself and his theology. I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work. So not my rhetorical skills, not our organizational skills, not how many people made it into groups, not how many dollars we gave. These are not the power of God at work. The good news of who Jesus is is the power of God at work, saving everyone who, what's the next word? Is that one of John's favorite words? Say yes. Okay, so are Paul and John on the same page? Say yes. Saving everyone who believes, the Sunday school kid first, and then the kid who never went to church. The message of who Jesus is, is God's chosen tool to save. By faith that the Holy Spirit puts in me when he transforms my heart, which is a gracious gift of God, Ephesians 2. Go check it out again if you haven't read it in a little while. I want you guys to see this one for yourselves. So if you're in the hardback, please turn to page 972. The rest of us, let's get over to Galatians chapter 2. I said Ephesians. I'm sorry. I meant to say Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. I want you to see this for yourself. starting in verse 17. He's talking about whether Christians still have to obey the law, the Torah, that was given to the people of God from Moses a long time before. Verse 17. But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ. Right? Same language. Through faith in Christ. And then... We are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would this mean Christ has led us into sin? Absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. Anybody ever felt like, even if you have to go back to elementary school, anybody ever felt like you've been in a situation where there was just, you knew no matter how good you are, probably you're going to break a rule at some point. I am not going to do this perfectly. I love sharing the story. I was 22 years old, 21 years old, taking some junior hires to Christian junior high camp for the summer. And this particular property, you walk into this main walkway, and right there before you turn right to the boys' cabins or left to the girls' cabins, there's this huge wooden sign with all the rules for the camp painted on it. And I'm just sitting here thinking, this is junior high camp. They're not going to read any of them. But 
Anyway, I was curious. It was my first time on the property, and I'm supposed to be a grown adult, ha-ha, um, to, like, enforce these rules. So I read them, and I found number 14 to be really conspicuous. Um, no throwing freshmen off of the top of cabin 12. <laughs> Sometimes the list of rules is so long. In your bones, you just, ah, I don't know. So we've got some... Who, who here is uh, getting ready for their driver's test or has taken their driver's test in the last couple of years? Like you've got it freshly on the mind. Getting ready or recently? Just a handful here? Okay. So can we agree that you're looking at all these rules and you go, I don't know if my parents obey half of these. <laughs> right? Your education in how to drive a vehicle doesn't start with the class driver's ed. You watch your parents' behavior for years, right? Heaven help us, because this is how our children learn everything. We open a Bible verse, my 11-year-old daughter, I could open up a Bible verse and say, this is how we're supposed to, like, oh, daddy, you don't do that. And this is why we're ter terrified to teach the Bible to our kids, right? Sanctification. You see these list of rules for driving a vehicle, and you think, first, wow, my parents don't do all of this. But then you get on the road and you go, Actually, no, kind of everybody's breaking a rule at all times. Now that I see, you know, tailgating, are you kidding me? I think this person wants a hug. They're so close to my car, right? Paul is saying human beings are not good at keeping rules. And if I try to take every law that God gave, I will be condemned by trying to justify myself before God by keeping all of the rules of the law. I will not be able to do it. This is why it is so critical in our theology where we wrestle with the law. Christians are first and last. You can, we can dive into all other details, but the first and last linchpin of our theology to the law, what we need to know above everything else, is that Christ never ever sinning is the completion of the law on our behalf. If you had not used your once a week amen by that point in the sermon, that was another incredible, let me, let me state it another way, Jesus was perfect for you. If you know nothing about Genesis through Deuteronomy, you need to start with this, Jesus was perfect for you. Every thing back there that you can find and go, oh, I have not done this, I have not done that, I have not done this, I have not done that. We can get down into the weeds later over what's ceremonial law, what's ethical law, what's civic law, but you just need to know starting out Jesus was perfect for you. That's what he's getting at. So I died to the law. We're in the middle of verse 19. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements. And before the Pharisees get upset, hold on, so that I might live for God. He just said there's something about trying to obey all the rules that stops me from living for God. Whoa. I don't know if you grew up in the same Sunday school that I grew up in, but where I grew up, super conservative Baptist, that was one and the, thing, one and the same. You filled out your, uh, your Awana crowns, and I'm pretty sure Jesus loved you more for each crown that got in there, you know? If you're new to church, mm -mm, no, that's not right. So, 20. My old self, here's the good news, folks. My old Greg has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. 
through me. Citrus Heights interacts with Christ when Greg walks down the street, if we're doing it right. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law can make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. You trying to be good? Knock it off. In fact, in so many words, multiple times, Jesus says, if you show up at my heaven with a laundry list of the good things you did that is so offensive to my nostrils, I'm going to throw you into hell. The Old Testament says it this way. All of your good deeds, you can take them into the temple and put them up on the altar, but they are the moral equivalent of taking used menstrual rags. Okay? If you know the the Levitical law, you know how uh, ceremonially unclean this is. And putting them on the altar instead of a perfect lamb or bull. Brothers and sisters, we do not know how much we are offending, we are spitting in the face of Christ when we try to walk into heaven with our own list of good things that we've done. And this is why we'll always name by name, not with condemnation, but with compassion and a broken heart, our Mormon friends. Our Mormon friends are in just as much trouble as the person who sits in a Christian church and thinks they're a Christian, but actually they're just trying to keep rules. Really, really moral people are some of the ones that are in the greatest danger of hell. Because a really, really jacked up person has a harder time denying that their life's a wreck. If you're kicking the tires of the Christian faith, I want you to ask yourself this. What miracles do you want from Jesus before you believe in him? And again, I've got to thread the needle here. I'm, I'm not here to be a jerk. That's not my job. But I'm also not here to be a pansy. As you read the Bible, and specifically the Gospel of John, you'll see over and over that John loves you too much not to tell you that Jesus is Messiah. And sometimes that's going to step on your toes because then you can't self-justify. And we as Christians here 20 centuries later, we have the exact same calling and the exact same gospel. If you're investigating Jesus, I have to ask you, because John is asking it, what more do you want from Jesus? What more do you want? And listen, I'm not living under a rock. I know how Dan Brown popular it is right now to just casually say that the Bible was assembled at the Council of Nicaea 325 AD, but I want to tell you something very important that could be a linchpin for your soul. That lie is so incredibly easily debunked if you'll just do a little bit of research. There's no need to believe that nonsense. It's not even hard. In 10 minutes through Google, you can find out that the Bible was not assembled at the Council of Nicaea. These are not a bunch of people after the fact making up a religion. And that's dangerous for your old self, your old flesh, the flesh inside you, your current self, if you don't yet love Jesus. Because now I have to deal with the fact 
that there are 1,800, 1,850-year-old texts that all match each other with incredible accuracy telling me exactly what Jesus said, how he said it, who was upset by it, that he was tortured, killed, and these same people testify that he raised himself to life. And now I have to do something with it. If you are investigating Jesus, I want to ask you, what more do you want from him than raising himself from death? Let me put it another way. Is there something or someone in your life who can do better than that? Has secular humanism done more for you? Did Buddha do more for you? Did Joseph Smith do more for you? Has your interpretation of science bled and died to wash away every dark thing in you? Did science do that for you? What more do you want? It is the question of the text, and it's the question of 2020. Because do you know how Christians are surviving 2020? You want to know? We've decided nothing. I don't want anything more. He is more than sufficient. I was going to make some comments on verses 33 through 36. I'm going to keep this super, super brief. And you can just write this in the margin of your notes. He not only makes yet another claim to deity in saying, where I'm going, you know, you cannot follow me. I'll be gone to the one who sent me. He uses the word return. If somebody's talking about heaven and they say return, then where did they come from? Right? So another claim to deity John just keeps these claims coming fast and hard to make it really, really, really clear that Jesus said, I'm God. And then, the scarier part, because he's, mind you, he's talking to these Pharisees that are trying to arrest him. He says, you cannot go where I'm going. Guests, you cannot go where Jesus wants to lead you. You cannot go into the presence of the Father. You cannot go where he was going then for just a couple of days, but then where he has been sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning for 2,000 years. You cannot go there so long as you're in the same position as the religious elite that Jesus faced. You can't. And I'm telling you because I love you. Heaven is real. Hell is real. They're deeply logical if you think about them and study. I've asked this church this before. I'm going to ask it again. If a known pedophile is allowed to go onto the playground where there are 20 kids playing, is that safe or unsafe for the children? So why do you think guilty people are going to be allowed to get into heaven? You and I already believe in segregating the guilty away from the innocent. If you believe that a dangerous person should be locked up in a jail, then you already believe in hell. Jesus said you cannot follow him to where he is going so long as you have the heart and the minds of these religious elites that see the miracles of God 
and then send people with swords to go kill God. And that is Jesus' warning to you, to me, his exact words. You cannot go where I am going. And he didn't say that to the 12, and he didn't say it to the crowds. He said it to the religious elites that were trying to kill him. You cannot go where I am going. This is sobering. Brothers and sisters, this is terrifying. We have friends and we have family who cannot go where he is going. We have people in our city that we care about that cannot go where he is going. And he has not come back the second time, so you know what that means? There's still time. The earth is not currently melting, so there's still time. If you love Jesus, you and I, we get to tell anyone and everyone who will listen, and maybe a few who won't, how desperately God has loved them, even in dying in their place. If you love Jesus, here's your blank. Embracing Jesus as the Savior of the world is step one. Step two is letting go of all previous saviors. Make sure that S is lowercase. I'm saying false gods. Because Jesus demands not just to be first in your life, he demands to be only. This is how you have life in his name. If you're a guest, is there something or someone greater than Jesus ready and willing to save the world? Please think it through, investigate, read ahead. Read ahead in the Gospel of John. Decide for yourself. The central question of the text is this. Is there something or someone who has given me more than Jesus Christ has given me? That's the question. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and lives today to see Jesus' face clearly and to respond with praise and worship and adoration and respect. Jesus, make our hearts to overflow with love toward you because you first loved us. Do the same things for our kiddos, Jesus, over here in the Pringle building. And for those of us, God, that already love you, Make us exactly, Lord, the church family that you want us to be. Make us salt and light this week in a world filled with division and confusion and hatred. Make us agents of your love. In the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. God's people said. One last announcement, super sneaky. I know, I saved it for the end. Melissa, are you here? Where's, oh. You're going to be in charge? Are you? Is it today? Because they're all off the hook if it's not today. Okay. So Melissa's going to go to the music room. We, have, we are purging this to turn it into an office because that building's going bye-bye. And the, God, the people of God said, amen. So this is becoming an office. So we have all kinds of stuff. 
that needs to go out to the dumpster. So if you're an able-bodied person, if we got 20 or 25 helpers, we have stuff just sitting in a huge pile, and if you could just grab something and take it out to the dumpster, we could probably get her in one trip. So if you'd be willing to help with that, that'd be great. Everybody else, socialize. Love you.